Today I want to talk to you about being consistent in the face of seemingly fruitless distractions. How's that for a title? <laughs> being consistent in the face of seemingly fruitless distractions. This uh, picture is the indication of something you know is going to go terribly wrong. <laughs> Uh, I'm a very task-oriented individual, scheduled, try to be efficient with time management. And I knew that um, when my kids would say, Dad, can I help? <laughs> that I either was going to end up getting really upset or freak out on them or I would need to change and embrace the moment and enjoy it. Besides being a perfectionist, I knew I could always patch up their mistakes later. <laughs> Learning to be consistent and a consistent witness to the grace of God requires change, especially when it seems that everything is conspiring against it. Being a consistent witness seems to be a real challenge for us, specifically when things are conspiring. Situations, people conspire against us being effective in being a witness for Christ. The Apostle Paul was also task-oriented, and he was on a mission. Despite opposition from his closest companions and the church, and the churches, and his friends. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. We read in Acts 20, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace, the task, the task of sharing the good news of God's grace. When I read this, I, I don't get the, uh, an impression that there's any clear sort of specific plan or any time frame. He just needs to get to Jerusalem and see what God has in store. He was convinced, though, that he was to testify to the good news of God's grace. However, that might unfold. We're going to read the entirety of Paul's experience in Jerusalem, and that's why I've asked you to have your Bibles. Um, I hope I'm not breaking some kind of etiquette or uh, creating or... or committing a terrible faux pas, but we're going to read a little bit here today. And um, because we need to have the full breadth of his experience in Jerusalem to understand uh, what God has here for us today. And so I'd like you to turn to Acts 21, verse 17, and I'm going to read. And you do know the ending. It starts at 2335, so... You can keep score as I read. Mm -hmm. 
When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you to. There are four men of us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Like that is so bizarre to us, like we have no idea what he's talking about, right? <laughs> like taking a vow, paying somebody, shaving heads, what in the world is that all about? Let's just not get into it too much other than to know that part of the law required, the law of Moses, required uh, purification rites, a means of purifying oneself if you've been defiled. And so Paul was being asked by these Jewish leaders to participate in a purification rite and to foot the bill for the four other dudes, presumably for their haircut. Then everyone will know that there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You see, they were at this critical point in the development of Christianity, in which there were Jews who had grown up under the law of Moses, who were coming to Christ, and there were non-Jews who didn't know anything about the law of Moses and all the customs and the observances, and they were coming to Christ. And so what were the Jews to do? Were they supposed to behave like the Gentiles, or were the Gentiles supposed to behave like the Jews and start to observe the law? And so decisions were having to be made. It was a time of transition. And in Jerusalem, it was a hotbed for maintaining the observance of the law. Right? And in the Gentile churches, the churches beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea, um, there was very few requirements related to the law. Just some very basic stuff, like don't eat meat of strangled animals and sexual immorality and not to participate in that or sacrifice idols. So, so there was sort of the basics. And so it's a time of transition. And so the people are concerned, right? They're concerned that here's Paul, who is a minister to the Gentiles, is going soft on the law of Moses and not requiring the Jews who come under his influence to observe the law of Moses. So the next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for them, each of them. When the seven days was nearly over, some of the Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, 
He's brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place. They'd previously seen Tromphimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and had assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some of officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. He's being beaten by these religious fanatics. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he'd done. And some of the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander couldn't get the truth, because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. They wanted him killed. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness for some time, some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the, to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned the crowd. And when they were all signed, he said to them in Aramaic, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. He's speaking to them in their language, okay? And he's saying, listen to my defense. And then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of, his, of this way to their death, arresting men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. You should love me. <laughs> because like I was a fanatic for the law of Moses. About noon, however, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me and I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuted, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will, you will, you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to the, all people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. And when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people there here will not accept your testimony about me. 
Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. In other words, he said to the Lord, why would they not? They know how zealous I am. They know that I can be trusted. I just have this new truth. I have new information. Shouldn't they just accept what I'm about to tell them? And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing me. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Well, the crowd listened to Paul until he said that. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. That changes everything. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do, he says. This man's a Roman citizen. And the commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replies. You see, if you are a Roman citizen, you had special privileges and rights. And you were entitled to a fair trial. Not like the Jews. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused of by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed law. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near him or near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize that he was the high priest, for it's written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. He apologized. And then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from the Pharisees. I stand on trial before, because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believed all these things. See, the Jews were divided into two sects predominantly, Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees uh, believed in resurrection and afterlife. Sadducees didn't. They believed this is it. This is all there is. So Paul threw that out there. <laughs> Things are not going good. I'm a Pharisee. So that got them fighting against each other. Oh, you don't they get into this whole resurrection debate. The next morning, some germs, Jews, germs, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 were involved. 
I'm, I'm sorry, I got mixed up. Yeah. Thanks, Carl. I'll back up here. First slide. Thank you very much. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, uh, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has broke, spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in the plot. They went to the chief priests, the elders, and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat until we kill this Paul. Then... Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about this case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. Um, he has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside, and asked, What is it that you want to tell me? And he said, Some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your, cons your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with his, this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready for a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at, night to, at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to the governor Felix. And he wrote a letter. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found out that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, and there was no charge against him that deserved, uh, that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried about, out against the man, I sent him to do to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. And when the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under the guard, under guard in Herod's palace. Quite an experience that Paul has in Jerusalem. This is the place that he wants to go so bad. He feels compelled by the Holy Spirit. His advisors are advising against it. It's not going to go well. Paul knows that it might not go well, but he feels like he's got to go. And he has to go because 
He wants to share the good news of God's grace in Jerusalem. Paul was determined to testify to God's grace. But, to me, being a task-oriented person, it just seems that this Jewish, this experience in Jerusalem for Paul was a litany of annoying and fruitless distractions. Firstly, he had to prove that he was living in obedience to the law. I feel like that's probably the last thing he wants to be doing. <laughs> he is bringing the good news of the grace of God. He is telling people about a new covenant that's about grace, not about the law of Moses. But he spends a lot of money and a lot of time proving his Jewishness in Jerusalem. If he's anything like me, that would have driven me crazy. I am here to witness to the grace of God. That there's nothing that you can do to be right with God. But yeah, sure. I'll go prove that I'm a Jew and I support the Jewish uh, Christians and I'll spend money and I'll, you know, help these guys out. I don't know. That would drive me crazy. That would drive me absolutely crazy. So he had to prove that he was living in obedience to the law. Secondly, even though he was determined to testify to God's grace, he had to teach an unteachable crowd. We have teachers in our midst. And as much as May and June are lovely in the sense that you're getting closer to the end and you're going to get a little break, the, the kids are pretty unteachable this time of year. <laughs> it's really hard to keep their interest. I remember being a school teacher, just take you know, everything within me, not to just sort of say, ah, oh, forget it. Forget this history. Let's go out and play kickball. It's a beautiful day, you know, and the kids will all love you for it. It's hard to teach unteachable people <laughs> who aren't interested. And Paul's situation is far worse than that. This crowd that he ends up sharing the good news of God's grace to, they're not just disinterested. They're hostile to him. They are looking for anything that they can nail him. Because he's known as the guy who is taking the Jewish faith the faith of our forefathers, and he's extending it in the gospel of Jesus Christ and the concept of a Messiah to Gentiles. So they're just looking for anything they can nail him with. They would love to nail him. You see, Paul was constantly under duress because of misunderstanding. And it's complicated, right? It's hard for me to stand here and explain how, you know, God's plan of redemption started with the founding of Israel. But then it includes Jesus as the Messiah, but it's for the whole world. That's complicated stuff. It's not a soundbite. It's not easy. 
And so he was known by, in many different ways, as a slanderer, as a heretic, as a guy who was out on, out by himself, doing his own thing. In Romans, we read these words. Um, in writing to the Romans, he says, well, well, he just kind of throws up his hands metaphorically. He says, why not say as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Sure. Why not? I don't teach that. <laughs> but I do teach grace. Right? And that you can be forgiven for what you're doing. But from a, from a, a, a legalistic perspective, oh, you're just teaching people they can do whatever they want and get forgiven. You see what Paul's dealing with. So here he is standing in Jerusalem with the city of Jews, hostile, because this is the guy who's messing things up. And they're just waiting for him to say something. And sure enough, he provides them with the thing that they wanted. He simply said, God told me to go to the Gentiles. And then the city went into an uproar. Kill him, throw him. Throw him out. Let's get rid of this guy. He's a heretic. So here's Paul. He's determined to testify to God's grace. He had to prove that he was living in obedience to the law. He had to teach an unteachable crowd. But thirdly, and I think this is classic, he had to play his status card. Paul strikes me as the last guy who's interested in kind of flaunting his Roman citizenship. He is not of this world. <laughs> he is not hung up on who you are, where you're from. He is the minister to the Gentiles. He's the guy who teaches to talks to the people that are on the outside, those looking in. But in this instance, as, as a matter of survival, and, and we can see also God's providence. He has to appeal to the fact that he's a Roman citizen and eligible for all the according and applicable rights and privileges. This is Paul. In Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There isn't male or female, for we are all one. So playing the card that I am a Roman citizen and I am entitled to better treatment, just... <laughs> Talk about an annoying nuisance, a distraction from what he wants to get doing, and that is preaching about the goodness of God's grace. It's no small wonder that while Paul, having only been there probably a few weeks, ends up in the barracks under protection by the Romans because he's a Roman citizen, and Jesus comes to him. Jesus comes to him. <laughs> and he says, the following night, we read in Acts 23, the following night the Lord, Jesus, stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. What strikes me about Paul's experience in Jerusalem, which on any level, any metric, 
of evaluation would be a disaster, right? It did not go well for him in Jerusalem. Would be a failure. He is consistent. He doesn't sort of take off his shoes and knock off the dust. He knows that God has him there and he's consistent. He doesn't condemn, curse, get ticked off at the Jews who are making him, the Jewish Christians who are making him do Jewish stuff so he looks Jewish. He doesn't mouth off to the crowd and tell them you're a bunch of idiots. You just don't want to learn. You're not listening. Don't you understand? I'm devout. I'm not a heretic, but there's something new here. Christ has come. He's the Messiah. Open your eyes. He's consistent. He goes through the paces. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He plays the citizenship card and I think every grain in his body or every molecule in his body probably was rebelling against doing that. Uh, because that's just not what he's about. It's not what he's interested in. It's not his passion. Paul is consistent in facing the seemingly fruitless distractions. Now, kids wanting to help you clean your car is obviously a silly example of what is required of those who want to show forth the grace of God, the good news of the grace of God. But what about the annoying colleagues at work who are a nuisance? What about that irritating church member who always disagrees with you? What about the friend who basically uses you for her purposes or his purposes? What about the family member who's constantly meddling? The list goes on because life goes on. <laughs> the list goes on because life goes on. And what we're talking about is the annoying colleague, the irritating church member, the friend, the family member. That's life. <laughs> I want you to think about Jesus Christ in closing. Christ's ministry was a ministry that consisted largely of seemingly fruitless distractions. Let me say that again. Christ's ministry, Christ's ministry, consisted largely of seemingly fruitless distractions. Don't believe me? Well, let's start where he initiates his very first act. He's at a wedding in Cana, and his mom wants him to do something. And he's like, Mom, don't bother me. It's not time. You're being a nuisance. He changes the water into wine. 
What about the woman who interrupts a meal put on by this big shot, part of the Sanhedrin for Jesus, who has the nerve to enter and anoint Jesus' feet with oil? If he'd been like Simon, that annoying, <laughs> that Pharisee, he would have said, get rid of, get, I'm busy. Can't you see I'm in the house of this important person? What are you doing? You're a nuisance. And yet we have in scripture, this woman elevated for all time as a woman of devotion and love. What about those annoying kids? People brought kids to Jesus, the rabbi, the teacher. Jesus, Jesus says, no, no, bring them to me. They're not annoying. They're not a distraction. I want to share the good, not, good news of God's grace with What about that hemorrhaging woman who's trying to keep up with Jesus in the crowd and she just reaches out and touches him, touches his cloak. And Jesus stops everything and extends his love and his grace to her. What about the lepers? I mean, the list goes on. Tell me that Christ's mission was not seemingly one random, fruitless, seemingly fruitless act after another. That's what Jesus' ministry was. That's what the gospel is full of. It wasn't a highly organized, tightly run, managed ministry. He responded. This is what I learned from Paul in Jerusalem. He was consistent. He had these annoying things going on around him, but he was consistent. God calls us to be consistent. We need to not look at the interruptions, the distractions, as outside of what God has for us, but ask what has God got in them for us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul. What a superstar he is. Thank you, Lord, for the way that you moved in his life and took him from being a legalist to someone who was put up with a lot because he just simply wanted people to know the grace of God. Lord, help us to be like that. Help us not to tolerate, but to embrace the distractions, the distractions. Help us not to see as fruitless our encounters, but to appreciate the fruit that can come from those encounters. You're a good God. We're not that good. <laughs> but we appreciate your patience with us and your grace toward us. And we want to be used of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.